Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcast and hit those five stars in the rating section. We're also always looking for financial support to help keep the show going, and it can be as simple as buying me a cup of coffee. You can do that by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma and get me a cup of joe to support the show. And if you're interested in merchandise, we also have a fun assortment of foodie pharmacology t-shirts, mugs, shoppy bags, notebooks, and so much more. You can find those at mysterycontrol.com and looking up foodie pharmacology. Okay, let's dive into today's show. This week, we're going to get into the source of life, seeds. Seeds are simply magical. We can find them in sizes smaller than a grain of sand, whereas others, like the coco de mer seed from, the, from a palm tree, are an astounding foot long and can weigh up to 40 pounds. Our guest today is a person that's very interested in seeds. He goes by the seed detective. His name is Adam Alexander. Adam is a consummate storyteller, thinks through 40 years as a successful and award-winning film and TV producer. His book, The Seed Detective, Uncovering the Secret Histories of Remarkable Vegetables, was published just this past fall. Adam's true passion is collecting rare, endangered, but above all, delicious vegetables from around the world. He lectures widely on this work and on discovering and conserving rare and endangered garden crops. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Adam. It's great to see you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be able to talk to you. Great. Well, why don't we start with just a, an introductory question? Um, what motivated your interest in tracking down these exciting, rare, and endangered varieties of garden vegetables? Well, I mean, I've been growing vegetables since I was a kid, and uh, you know, I'm a country boy, so um, I you know, grew up on the land. And um, it's always been natural for me to, to, to have a vegetable garden and grow stuff. And, but it was not until about 30, 35 years ago, 34 years ago, it was right at the end of the 1980s. And I was actually making a TV series in uh, all places, Donetsk in the Ukraine. And mm. back then uh, the Soviet Union was imploding and it was, um, it was a it was a it's a very interesting time to be there. I mean, Ukraine only got its independence a couple of years after I had been filming there. But Donetsk was this sort of crumbling, ruined um, steel town, and which had been founded by a Welshman, which was why I was making this series. And I had a bit of a, a, a problem, which was that my director. Um, was a vegetarian. Not that it was a problem him being a vegetarian, but it was very much a problem trying to feed a vegetarian in the Soviet Union because that's hard. Um, uh, it, it was it was a challenge. His diet a lot was of a lot of meat, huh? <laughs> a lot of meat. Yeah, if you liked if you liked black bread and potatoes and pickles, you could just about get by. But I I, I had a responsibility responsibility to keep him fed. And um, the only place you could really buy any decent food was in the local market. And it was there that in this market, and I, I thought, I'm, I've got to go and get something and go into the kitchen and cooking, cooking some decent food. Um, and it was in this market that I met somebody who was who was a sort of a, an archetype. She was a person who 
I then have spent the rest of my life since that time trying to track down. And she was sort of what I call everyone's ideal granny. She was <laughs> this, um, this lady of a certain age who had been growing fruit and vegetables in her backyard, in her garden, um, and was selling what she had in the market, basically to make ends meet because there was nothing in the shops and nobody had any money. It was a difficult time. And I looked at her stall and there were various vegetables on it. And amongst them were these peppers. And I didn't really think very much of, of them other than that they were just nice red peppers. So I bought some and took them back into the kitchen of the hotel and thought I'd better see what they're like and sliced into one and uh, took a bite. And it was a sort of wow moment for me because mm -hmm. this pepper was sweet, but it had a lovely um, fruity heat warmth to it. And I thought, blimey, I haven't, this is an amazing sweet pepper. Um, and of course the director was very happy. He got some nice food to eat. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. went back and bought more. And I thought, I wonder what happens if I try and save some of these seeds um, and take them home with me um, and see what happens. And so I took some seeds and dried them on the windowsill of my hotel bedroom and took them back home. And I've been growing that pepper ever since. And it was what started me on this journey, really trying to um, understand what it was that people were growing and eating that were an intrinsic part of their food culture? What was it that mattered to them? And of course, the pepper uh, is very important in, uh, in Central Eastern European cuisine. It was, it was eaten widely in the Ukraine and in, in, and in Russia, but also across lots of other countries in, in Central Europe. And um, it, as a result of sort of thinking about it, I then thought, you know, I'm on the road all the time. I'm traveling a, a lot because I'm making films everywhere. And as a producer, my job is always to get everybody else to do the work. And <laughs> that, meant that, that meant that I could, you know, whilst the crew's off doing stuff, I could go and seek out this um, archetype this ideal granny in markets wherever I was. And I'd go and talk to farmers and gardeners. And I was really interested in trying to identify initially what, were, what, was the, what was the food that you eat and what are the varieties that you grow and what's so great about them? And as a result, I started to put together a, a collection. And a, it was, a lot of it was capsicums. Most, it started with chilies mostly and beans and then tomatoes and it's sort of grown from there. And now I have a collection of about 500 varieties. And Amazing. How many of those yeah. do you grow? How many of those do you grow in your garden right now? Well, in, I, so I'm saving seeds every year. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a sort of rotation. So I work on a sort of seven-year rotation. Although if anybody had looked at any of my recent tweets, they'll see that I'm growing Ukrainian pepper seed that is 20 years old this year. Um, wow. And that, that's part of the story. You know, that pepper, which I found, uh, came across all those years ago, I'm now growing out for seed to give to displaced Ukrainians so that they can grow them themselves and be reminded of home. But in general, out of those 500 
varieties, I'm looking to try and refresh somewhere between 40 and 70 varieties a year. And I'm then growing a number for seed for organizations like the Heritage Seed Library because I'm a seed guardian. So there's probably at least a dozen, sometimes more varieties that I'm growing for them. And then I'm also growing varieties, um, particularly to return to displaced people. So as a result of being in Syria in 2011, I had a small collection of, of local varieties, which I grow and now share amongst displaced Syrians um, all over the world. Um, and it's now starting to happen with Ukrainians too. That's amazing. So that's, yeah. it's, a busy, it's a busy time. I, I probably grow about 120 to 140 varieties every year. Um, and I don't have a big garden. Um, I grow lots and lots and small amounts. And then sometimes I have to grow bigger quantities when I'm growing out seed for a library. Uh, but otherwise, it's small amounts that I can maintain my collection and obviously share with other people because that's at the heart of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and you're you're based in the UK, right, Adam? I'm wondering yeah. with these species that are from different parts of the world, do you do you need to grow them under certain conditions, like in a greenhouse, or are you able to grow them outdoors? Okay. Well, it it depends what it is. I mean, what um, I, I have a couple of polytunnels and a greenhouse, and um, and mm -hmm. I do grow a great diversity of crops under under cover. But actually, what's amazing is how you a lot of these traditional heritage and heirloom varieties are, are very genetically diverse. They're also, they, they're locally adapted. So I end up with quite a lot of land races. And what is amazing is that I can, I, you know, particularly with things like chilies, um, that I can collect them from somewhere in, you know, halfway around the world in the tropics and bring them home. And they're very happy growing hmm. and say something. And also they become locally adapted. So certain varieties that I've been growing for, you know, 20 or 30 years, they have become very well adapted. And so they may have started their life being grown in the greenhouse, but now more and more of them I grow outside. And with global warming, the climate climate has really changed a lot since I started doing it. And so um, it's become easier for me to uh, it to grow more outside. But when it's something like fava beans or French, you know, pole beans, as you would call them, or peas, brassicas, um, most root vegetables, all of those things, lettuce, they'll grow anywhere. Mm, that's great. Well, I mean, this is an old tradition. We used to have this also in the US where we'd have seed swaps and kind of exchanges. And now it's more of a niche, you know, community that engages in this because to be honest, many of us don't grow vegetables any longer in gardens, no. um, which I think is really sad. We should be growing more vegetables. So I guess, can you walk us through some of the seed saving process? So you mentioned that you dry them on a windowsill, but how does one even begin to preserve seeds? And can we preserve seeds from the things we're growing in our gardens? I'm thinking, especially of some of the GMO crops that are, you know, where we buy seeds at this store, we may not be able to propagate from those seeds. So how does one get started and how does one know what to plant um, to, well, to start this process? Well, the, 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 the trick is to grow what are called open pollinated varieties. And so pretty much all traditional varieties that were grown really up until uh, the, the days of modern 
plant breeding where the, the creation of F1 hybrids, which don't come back true, it means that it that what the offspring are the same as the parent when it's an open pollinated variety. And the truth is that so many of the vegetables that we that we grow and eat are really, really easy to save seeds from. Believe you me, if it wasn't easy, we wouldn't have found ourselves with the amazing diversity of, of, of vegetables that we have today. And it's a fraction of, of what was we had even 100 years ago. We've lost so much. But things like, so if it's, for example, something like a pea or a, a, or a pole bean or what we call a French bean. Peas and French beans are very, very easy because they are self-fertile. So you get a different types of flowers on certain crops that are self-fertile and distinct. And so it means that they they tend, they're, they're very unlikely to cross-pollinate. They will cross-pollinate and you do get accidental crossing from time to time, but it's very unusual. Um, and uh, so something like a peas in particular, because of the way that the flower operates, it actually is pollinated before the bee is able to transfer pollen from another flower. And something oh. like a tomato, most tomatoes, um, most tomatoes have flowers which are perfect. And so the, 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 the pollen, by the time the pollen gets to the outside of the flower, it's already pollinated. So it doesn't matter uh, the bee, he can't, the pollen cannot be transferred back inside another flower. There are that, that, so there's some technicalities, but essentially, if you are growing um, traditional varieties of tomatoes, uh, there are some that the very big ones, so things like beefsteaks and thing, um, tomatoes that are called potato leaf tomatoes have a slightly different flower structure, but essentially, you just let them ripen scoop out the seeds, uh, rinse them under water in a colander. I actually, because I'm saving quite large quantities, I'll put them in a jar and I allow them to ferment for a week because there's a sort of skin on the tomato oh. seed which breaks mm -hmm. down with fermentation, which is rather like it going through the gut of an animal, for example. Okay. Um, and then you just and then you just rinse them and you, I spread them out on a piece of greaseproof paper um, or you can do it on a on a on a sort of china dish somewhere out of direct sunlight but warm and dry so mm -hmm. a kitchen windowsill is perfect um and you leave them for a few days and you you, you and let them dry and i scrape them off after a couple of days and rub them in my fingers to separate them and um then and dry them and then you put them in a in an envelope and the trick is to keep them dry keep them dark and keep them cold and they don't have to be very cold but if you want to keep seeds for more than one or two years you really need to keep them at a constant cool temperature so all of my seeds are in jars uh they can be in kilner jars but also in in envelopes in airtight tupperware boxes in a couple of fridges in my uh garage but for most okay. of us really easy and things like peas which are also self-fertile and french beans you just leave them on the vine until they're ripe and when they, mm. you shell them they're dry you put them in a jar or in a bag store them and off you go next year it's 
really that simple. That's amazing. So go ahead. this this fermentation step is really interesting. How do you walk walk that line between fermenting kind of the the coating on the seed versus having it go bad? Are, do you look out for signs? Do you do this with all seeds or just with the tomato seeds? No, no. I I do it with the the seeds that I tend to do it with. I do it with t tomatoes, um, mm -hmm. and I do it also uh, with cucumber seed. Um, mm. But cucumber seed again. What one? But I don't leave them to ferment for very long. You know, three days, four days. I mean, if you leave them in a, if you leave, if you leave them for too long, they will obviously the, the, the you know the whole thing they will start to decompose um mm -hmm. but that's so it's timing is everything but actually if you just want to save a few seeds for yourself you don't need to do that you can just literally just rinse them and um spread them out to dry and they will be absolutely fine because when they are dry you are also able to rub off a lot of that sticky mm. coat that you get it's much more of an issue with some something like uh cucumbers because um they have this again it's a sort of like um uh they, dare i say it they they each seed comes with its own condom you know <laughs> some, that's great <laughs> inside this translucent uh sort of um slippery um uh protection and um, by allowing them to ferment slightly, it all breaks down. And uh, mm -hmm. so it all then floats, uh, it, it, it floats the top and you can strain it off and are left with, with seeds. So there's a certain amount of washing and um, great. straining. It's just so, so one last question on the ferment then, sure. do you leave them in water? Like they're floating in water or are they just kind of wet and in a jar? No, no, I put them in, 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 in a jar with, uh, with water. I mean, oh, if okay. I was to, so it just, just a, a regular jar with about, you know, if you, if the jar is quarter full of tomato seed, I'd, you know, the, I'll fill the jar up with water. One of the things that you can also do is, which speeds up the process is to add, say, if you have a, say a pint jar, mm -hmm. uh, now I would put a teaspoon of of washing soda into the water and that again helps uh to speed up the sort of breakdown of this uh, carapace that's, that's that's on the seed i can't remember the botanical name for it which is very very bad of me isn't yeah it? no no <laughs> this is fascinating yeah it's all these little tricks i think that you know i i for one i'm not familiar with so this is this is great to learn all the tips and how you do this yeah. well, i mean certainly for beans and peas and brassicas all you're really doing is allow is letting just letting the seed pod dry and 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 capsicums chilies are easy because when they're ripe you just take the seeds out of a ripe uh, i mean i sometimes hang them up and let them dry but you don't really need to do that once it's really ripe you just take the seeds out i don't wash them even i just then just spread them out um for a day or so and they're dry and off you go easy that's great well, there's, I think there's sometimes a misperception of how seed banking works. I mean, I think many of our listeners may be familiar with, you know, seed vaults, the Svalbard seed vault, the Millennium Seed Bank. Um, but what they may not know is that you actually have to grow these out regularly. It's not just collect it once and you're done. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your work as a seed saver um, or as a seed guardian and more about what sure. that entails? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, the analogy is exact, you know, we go to a library because we want to borrow a book and then we read it. When we've 
finished it with we return it to the library uh, for somebody else to enjoy and in a way that's what a seed library is doing what we are doing is we are keeping the important thing is actually these these um heritage and heirloom and ex-commercial off-list varieties that are that, that that we are seeing more and more of being sort of celebrated around the world and with entities like you know the seed savers exchange in america and lots and there's all over the europe all over the world now you see them is we alive so i'm somebody who is growing out varieties to replenish the library so that people can try something and then for example with the heritage seed library if you are a member of the library you have access to seeds every year and then you're invited to return seeds but you're not expected to and then you have people like me who are seed guardians who are specifically charged with growing out certain varieties which we call orphans because you know they, they just need to re be replenished from time to time Whereas, of course, Svalbard, which is a seed bank, um, is exactly that. It's a vault and it's like where you put things um, in case all hell breaks loose. And um, that, 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 that's kind of important. So, But even these uh, seed banks like Svalbard, you can't leave the seeds in there forever and not try and refresh them. It's, it's very important that we are continually maintaining these uh, varieties and of course they're there for, for plant breeders to develop new cultivars to deal with you know the, ch the changing climate and and the changing demands of food production today yeah and I think it's uh, banks like that global banks like that are so important especially as you were mentioning during times of war and strife we know that in Syria they had difficulty as you know accessing their seed vault during a period of famine in Ukraine, their seed vaults have also been impacted by the war. Um, and so you can lose these, these incredible histories of seed and genetic information that have been accumulated over centuries of people farming. Um, well, I mean, and, and Syria is an, a classic case in point because I mean, I, I spent time there and it, it's, I mean, Syria is, it was the breadbasket of the Middle East. I mean, it is mm -hmm. the heart of the Fertile Crescent. It's, um, it, it, for, in terms of what they were producing there and the quality and the diversity of crops is amazing but the the seed bank the 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 the, the gene bank in aleppo i mean they had mm -hmm. i think 150,000 wheat accessions now wow. that is that is amazing and fortunately they got them out in 2012 um to svalbard um mm -hmm. uh, just in time and i understand now that actually what's happened is some of that seed is now being grown out in North Africa uh, to bulk up to be able to get back into uh, use again in um, obviously in Syria. But that's very, very difficult at the moment because there's so little farming, you know, the, 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 mm. the displacement of half the nation has yeah. created chaos. But it's, chaos. So it's, quite, it's quite interesting that you have these local gene banks and so long as there's a route for them to get their seeds out and into Svalbard, then they can then subsequently be either returned or go into another environment to be bulked up because they only keep really quite small amounts of those particular accessions um, mm -hmm. as, as the sort of genetic 
um, what what's the word I'm looking for? They sort of I know they, you know they they they're, they're just genetic a, insurance almost. It's that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, but let's it's talk really a little bit. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, mean, it's, I think, you know, a, a, a seed bank is one thing, but actually one of the, I mean, you said earlier about how, you know, it was something that we all used to do. And it's um, one of the things that really motivates me and which I found, you know, traveling as, as much as I have and also being a grower is when people are connected to the land, then actually their relationship with their food is far more meaningful and that's you know they care about what the yeah. variety of tomato is or the bean or whatever it is it matters and obviously as we in this industrialized world have become so detached from it and yet once we start to tell stories about these vegetables which is kind of the thing that i really wanted to do in the book is to help people to kind of think actually these vegetables are part of my story and they're because they're absolutely connected with civilization and the journey of humans around the world and globalization which started you know thousands of years ago because all of our ancestors when we traveled what did we carry with us we carried with us the seeds of the things that we were growing in our homelands and then we find ourselves somewhere else and we start growing them there mm -hmm. and once people I find that once, and it's particularly the case with local varieties, if you've got a local heirloom um, that people suddenly see, they see it in the farmer's market or the chef starts to use it in their cuisine or it, it ends up in, in the grocery store or in people's gardens, then actually it's a wake up moment and people start to think differently about their food and why it matters that it's you know what it is good quality you know grown in a sustainable way etc etc yeah that that definitely gets into a, another question i had is how do we restore connectivity to our land to our food systems and um as you said you you explore this in the book tell tell us a little bit about the book and the seed stories that you cover well the what i what i've done is I, I decided to sort of feature 14 different um, types of vegetables that it's in two parts. There are the vegetables that come from the east of my garden and the vegetables that come from the west. So the east is the new world of uh, the old world and the west is what we call the new world of the Americas pr principally. And I, I wanted to tell this, this journey, this story of from wild parent, if you like, to cultivated offspring, that 12,000 years ago in various different places in the world, but for the purposes of the book, the vegetables I was looking at are those ones that principally come from the Fertile Crescent um, in, in the Middle East and from uh, Mesoamerica um, in, in Central America and the Northern parts of South America. And those are the kind of, vegetables that we completely take for granted you know the, the number of people who I speak to who don't realize that tomatoes you know are, in, are native to it's to Mexico um you know that the chilies come from um that come from South America and there are different ones that come from different places and their names tell you where they where, where they they've been bred and the stories that that 
are associated with them. You think of maize, you know, that comes, it was domesticated in one small valley in, 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 in Southwest Mexico. I mean, it's amazing. And I think that telling those stories about where they originated and how they were domesticated by these amazing Neolithic farmers thousands of years ago. I mean, I sit at the feet of these, these, these farmers because they were able to take a wild plant and look through observation at its traits and how it might change so that you know the seeds of the, the heads of the wheat weren't shattering and those are the ones that they saved which meant that they could then grow it and, and, and store it and so this movement from hunter-gatherer to farmer to me is fascinating um, and it then it also is the story of civilization because once you have settled farming you then have the ability to build societies, settle societies and cities and communities. Mm -hmm. And we see that all over the world. And then of course, so many of the vegetables in the book are also part of that story. You know, they, they really were important thing, you know, like garlic was a, a key, it was very important in Egyptian society. Asparagus. I mean, the, the, the Romans were mad about asparagus and uh, you know, they had ships that sailed around the Mediterranean, shipping it around to everybody. And they used to they used to send it up into the Alps to freeze it so they could eat it at these festivals early in the new year and they dry it. I mean, it's amazing. And then you think of the diversity of brassicas that we have, the cauliflowers and um, calabrese and all of these things. These were all developed by farmers, you know, 3,000 years ago. Um, and they didn't have any scientific knowledge. They weren't doing anything in a, mm -hmm. in a systematic way. They were just observing, tasting, because it, it had to taste good, and selecting from the traits that they needed in order to be able to not only survive, but also to celebrate. And I think that's really, really important how food, these vegetables are absolutely part of our food culture and our cuisine. Um, and so the book is full of all of these different types of vegetables, and many of which you kind of think, blimey, I had no idea that, um, that it, you know, something like the lettuce, you know, it's, it's, you find it in carvings on Egypt, in Egyptian hieroglyphs. It was, um, uh, it, it's it's amazing that how it was um, domesticated and then carefully bred and selected to be a certain type. You know, if you think in, in we call them cos lettuces. Why are they called cos lettuces? Because they were grown on the island of Kos in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in America, you call them remains, I think. But, remains. Uh, the island yeah. of Kos is also where Hippocrates um, is from. Hippocrates of Kos. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I, I tell you what, the, 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 the ancient world was amazing. I mean, the, the, there's yeah, a wonderful absolutely. story about Archimedes had, um, he suffered from something called Favism, uh, mm. which is, and, and actually, you know, it's the great, the poor guy, um, you know, he found himself being chased by assassins um, into a field of fava beans. And oh, no. <laughs> he didn't know to run or to stand. He decided to stand, which was not clever because they killed him. 
But oh. he was so fearful of being in a field of fava beans, he figured he was had a better chance against a bunch <laughs> of assassins. So, uh, but um, I love those stories. I love the stories about how, um, you know, there's a wonderful, the national vegetable. I mean, I live in Wales and, um, you know, the, the national vegetable is the leek. And there's there was, back at the beginning of the 20th century, there was this ferocious argument amongst the great and good in Wales about whether the, it should be the daffodil, a noble flower, or a stinking herb, the leek, uh, as, the, as the emblem of the nation. And of course, this is all tied up with um, the story, and we see it, you know, Shakespeare writes about in Henry V, you know, of the Welsh fighting the, of, the, of the infidels with leeks in their caps, and, um, and St. David, the patron saint, who was a great orator, and he claimed to be a great orator because he ate leeks. Now, he wasn't the only one. Nero also was... Of Rome, uh-huh. And he was known as Poros breath, leek breath. Leak breath. <laughs> it's good for the health, good for the blood, I guess. I, I had a chance to, I had a chance to travel to Wales um, a few years ago and saw um, Snowdonia National Park. Beautiful, beautiful area. Lots of really yes, interesting plants know. there. Yeah. yeah. You know, the crazy well, thing mm -hmm. is about a leek is that actually it may be the national vegetable of Wales, but there is not. And, and uh, there is not what I would call a genuine heritage or heirloom Welsh leek. They were oh. grown up until the, uh, the early 40s. There was a commercial variety of, called the Welsh leek, which I cannot find it anymore. And yet, mm. who, did, who have been the great breeders of leeks in the, in the British Isles? It was the Scots. Scotland is where leeks have really were really developed, and there's a very famous variety called Musselburgh, uh, which mm. is kind of still grown and prized and admired. So it's quite interesting how, again, mythology and identity and a humble leek come together. <laughs> come together. In a, in a, what I think is just a hilarious story about it's how amazing. Most, yeah. That's amazing. Okay, um, one okay, last. Actually, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a very serious moment. It wasn't Archimedes. It was Pythagoras who was. Oh, okay. Do you know, it's not terrible. It was, yeah, <laughs> you've got some serious editing to do it. Yes, it was Pythagoras <laughs> who was found himself stuck, caught between uh, uh, assassins who were after him, and walking into a far, uh, field of fava beans, and he decided that he would face his assassins rather than suffer than the fava beans. illness uh. from fabism. Um, yeah, and, that, and they killed him. I mean, That's interesting. Yeah, I always thought of fabism as something that you would eat, but maybe he also had an allergy, you know, to the beans themselves somehow. Like, yeah. Well, it's also quite interesting because if you think about and again, this goes back to questions, more serious question about health. And mm. we, we talk about modern, a lot of modern cultivars are genetically very narrow. They, they tend to be bred for uniformity and shelf life and all the rest of it. And a lot of the things that we tend not to, we don't like anymore in 
in vegetables, bitterness being one of them. Are these are the antioxidants that plants were using to protect themselves from herbivores, mm -hmm. which made them bitter. And, but in fact, they're extremely good for us. And yeah. it's interesting that you take something like the fava bean, which again had um, a chemical in it that would would normally put the predator, the human, off eating it. But what, again, the, the genius of these early farmers was in the selection that they started to be able to find changes in the morphology of many of these very early um, um, domesticated varieties that, of course, didn't kill them. And so, again, they were selecting for varieties that had less of those toxins in them that would um, that would would do it for us, and I mean that was that was the case for lots of um, vegetables. Now people used to think that tomatoes were deadly poisonous because of their association with mandrake, um, and people were very very cautious about eating vegetables because mm -hmm. a lot of them were really quite poisonous. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of the show. And before we right. do wrap up, I have two questions for you. This is, I actually have one question I always ask the guests, but I'm going to ask you an additional one. And here are the two parts. Number one is, what is your favorite um, cultivar to grow? And how do you make a delicious dish out of it? What's a recipe you can share with us? Uh, I, I, it's, oh, that's so hard. That's such a mean question. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, it's like, we, which is your favorite child? Tell us. Uh, which plant is your I guess. I, I mean, I have I have lots of favorites, but I think yeah. the the in terms, it's really if you have a garden and you grow stuff, actually, fresh vegetables require very very little cooking, um, mm -hmm. and that's why I like what you know Italian cucina. You know, the the peasant food is simple because you've been out in the field you've harvested the crop you do very little with it because it tastes so good and there's a particular pea that i found i discovered in um, northern catalonia um, some years ago that is called avi yuan and it was the pea was named after the grandmother of the guys this guy jesus vargas who i knew who had been growing it. And in fact, he was the only person in the world who was growing this pea until I met him. But it is just divine. And I, when you ask me what's the recipe to the, for it, mm -hmm. the truth is, if I can be strong enough not to have eaten them all between taking them <laughs> off the vines and getting them into the kitchen, which is no <laughs> mean task, I can assure you, because they're that good, is... It's interesting about peas because they there's there's a there's a dish that I that I make, which is a, a frittata, and um, I you just make a frittata and you, you you just chuck a load of those into a frittata yeah. and it's bliss, um, easy <laughs> with, with with a nice with a nice um, I like a nice lively cheese like a, a sheep's cheese like a pecorino or something like that, but. Mm. Um, in, it's ask the question, what's the dish that I most like to cook um, with my vegetables? It's something really, really simple. Um, because great. as soon as you start mucking around with vegetables, you're lost. 
in my opinion. I like this. This is a great way to wrap a show. Here's a recipe <laughs> for easy bliss. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Pleasure. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, foodies, that's our show for today. If you've enjoyed this episode and our others, please do go on over to Apple Podcasts and hit those five stars in the rating section. We're also always looking for financial support, so you can help us out by going to buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma. And we also have a great assortment of merchandise for sale, and that's all available at mysterycontrol.com and just search for Foodie Pharmacology. Um, I want to make sure and give a shout out of thanks to our amazing producers for the show, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thank you to you, my dear listeners. Stay healthy out there, and I look forward to seeing you next time.